Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written 35 cookbooks, including the Instant Pot Bible, I should say the best-selling Instant Pot Bible, and its companion follow-up, the Instant Pot Bible Next Generation that takes Instant Potting even farther. But we are not talking about Instant Pots in this episode of our podcast. We're going to continue on with what we started last time, which is how to buy a grill or what to look for in a grill. We're going to talk all about that as well as a lot else about food and cooking. So let's get started. Last time we had a whole episode about buying a grill part one. Today we're going to take it a little deeper and give you a few more details. And I want to start by things you should look for if you're buying a charcoal grill. Okay. And the thing is, everyone wants to buy that round kettle grill. And you don't have to stick to round. You know, these no, grills come barrel shaped. They come in squares. They do. And what you really want to be concerned about is the total square footage of the grill grate. I think that's the most important thing you need to think about. If you're just cooking for yourself, then the total square footage doesn't really matter. But if you're going to have friends over, or you have kids, or your kids have friends, which I'm sure they do, or anything like that. I hope they do. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Think about, I don't know, I'm making this up, but think about four pork chops and four ears of corn and, I don't know, four whole russet potatoes. Think about how much oven space that takes up. Think about where that all goes. How do you fit it all on a grill grate? And not only is it how much you could fit on the grate itself, mm. but you might want a grate big enough that you could shove coals to one side and cook with the meat on the other side. And why would I do that, Mark? Well, it's called indirect cooking. And that's when you build a nice coal bed, as Bruce says, and then you rake it to the side or you push it to the side, not with your hands. Uh, some other tongs tool. Are tongs good. are good. Yes, I know. You can even use a long-handled garden trowel that you only use for grilling just to make sure it doesn't have a plastic edge to it can melt. Same thing it, with tongs. None of those nylon tips. No, none of that. All that stuff will melt. We're talking about just good old metal tongs. Anyway, you push all the coals to the side. And that's because you want to cook essentially using your grill as an oven. You're putting the heat to the side and then you're going to put, let's say, a pork shoulder on the quote unquote unheated side of the grate and roast it. That is actually barbecue. Yes, and when well, you talk about barbecue in well, the South, yes. in Texas, that's barbecue. You have hot wood coals. They're off to the side. They're creating a lovely wood smoke flavor. Right. Your meat is indirect. Right. You do what Mark said. You can master barbecue. Yeah, I know. That it's hard to understand. But Bruce and I did a lot of work over the years for Weber and Weber Grills, wrote a lot of books, which our names are not on, but ghosted <laughs> a lot of books for Weber. And um, there's a big uh, divide in Weber lingo, and there should be a divide in your lingo between barbecuing and grilling. Grilling is where you put something directly over the heat source, so you put it directly over the ranks of a gas grill or directly over the coals. And barbecuing is when you put it to the side of the heat ranks or to the side of the coals, and therefore you're kind of using your grill as an oven, except what you're trying to do is get a lot of that grilly, smoky flavor. Oh, God. Yummy. So I don't 
care whether you've chosen a round one or a barrel-shaped one or a square one. You got one that fits your size. Now, there are all sorts of accessories you can get. So what yeah. do you need and what can you live without? Well, something you absolutely need is a good, great cleaner, right? Yeah, you do. Um, when we used to write recipes for Weber all those years, the first step of every recipe had to be clean the grate with a brush. Because, listen, there's a lot of gunk that gets burned onto the grate and you need to scrape it off. Some of that gunk is actually actually carcinogenic because it's so carbonized. You need to clean it off. You don't have to go insane, but you need a good grill grate brush in order to sweep your grate clean before you heat it. But once it's hot, give it a brush again because that'll help get anything that then burned on even more off. So you want to do it before and after. Just be very careful. You should be careful. And one of the things that I like to use is I have a good pair of heat-proof fireplace gloves. And those are designed so, like, if you can actually move a hot piece of wood in your fireplace. Oy, so oy, 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 that oy. way, if I need uh, to, uh, I can uh, move some coals around. But m- make sure. My lawyer says we can't say that. Okay, so you're not allowed to get that. No. I mean, really, someone's <laughs> going to burn themselves. Um, okay. The litigation on that's too high. Don't do not do that. Don't move things around. I know the grill masters move stuff around with their hands in the, in the gloves. But you know what? Get yourself a grill spade, it's called or a grill rake and get yourself a good grate cleaner. What accessories for the charcoal grill do you think everyone should have? Well, I love this thing called the kettle pizza and it's for round Weber style charcoal grills and it is... 21 inch. Yeah. They probably make other sizes at this point too but basically what it is is a round ring you put on your grill and then the lid goes on top of that. It elevates the lid and you can turn your good old grill into a Tuscan pizza oven with it. They are amazing tools. The flames go up the back. You kind of rake the coals to the back and the way this thing draws air in, the flames will actually come up and over the top inside of the lid. Kettle pizza is an amazing tool. I've actually not only made pizza in this thing, I have gotten it nice and hot and the flames shooting up the back because you put a piece of wood in the back on top Mm. of the coal. So you actually get a little smoke. You get real fire happening. Mm. I have shoved a cast iron skillet full of a cut up chicken into that. I've even put trout Mm. in the cast iron skillet. And then you get wood fired trout, wood fired chicken. It's a lot more than just pizza. Yeah, look them up. Kettle Pizza and look at their tools because those and the guys that run the company are really kind and nice. And um, it's a real Really great tool. We've said enough about uh, charcoal grills, so let's, let's get a little more in-depth about gas grills. And the most in-depth place we can get is all about BTUs or British Thermal Units. Okay. It's the measurement of heat standard in the grill industry. And the standard you're looking for when you buy a gas grill is between, here's going to get a little wonky, 75 and 100 BTUs per square inch of cooking surface. This is really going to get It just requires a little math. And here's why. Manufacturers tell you what the total BTU output for all the burners total is, but they don't tell you what it is per square inch. So you need to pull out your phone and pull up the calculator function, and you need to figure out what the BTUs, what's the BTU on your grill? So let's take the Weber Genesis. It's a three-burner grill as an example, right? Okay. With three burners giving you 38,000 BTUs when it's a full blast. The grill grate is 507 square inches. 
That gives you 75 BTUs per if you, square If inch. you just do the division, 507 right. square inches, that many BTUs, you get 75 BTUs per square inch, which is just at the recommended level. There's 75 to 100 BTUs is what you want per square inch. If you had the same size grill, but it only gave you 25,000 BTUs. Which is common. That wouldn't cut it. So no. you have to do a little bit of math, and it's not just the total BTUs. It's right. how much BTUs That's per right. square inch. You have, you, some grills are, uh, many grills, I shouldn't say some, many grills are underpowered for what is desired. And th- basically, you're looking at 75 to 100 BTUs per square inch of cooking surface. So measure that cooking surface, divide it all up by the BTUs, or actually the BTUs by the cooking surface, <laughs> whatever. It's the other way around, but okay, whatever. And you're going to get... Get the number that you're looking for. And again, you're looking for something between 75 and 100. And let me tell you that there are some grills out there, some big-ass wampin' grills that go up over 100 BTUs. And for home use, this is often too powerful. It can be too powerful. It could burn your stuff. It could burn you. And a lot of times... Um, gas grills will have a sear burner or an extra burner in the middle to give you a super hot spot. And that'll throw your BTUs way up even over the 100 in that place. And I find when I use that, because my grill does have that, I can't keep it on the entire time I'm cooking steaks. I do it to get a nice char up front, and then I turn that sear burner off and let things go so at a lower BTU. Let's just say that what we're talking about here, too, is that gas grills have ranks. They have, that is, the bars at which the gas flames come up. And Bruce is saying that sometimes one of those ranks is of higher power than the others. But in general, in gas grills, ranks either run, I can't say vertically and horizontally because the whole thing's lying flat, but they either run toward you, you know, or they run 90 degrees away from you. They either ride side to side or top to bottom. I don't know how to describe this, but they either ride toward you, top to bottom, or they're running parallel to you side to side across the grill. <laughs> I have a preference. I prefer the ones that run top to bottom, like from the front of the grill to the back of the grill as opposed to side right, to from side. From my stomach to the back of the grill. And why I like that is because when I have three or four that run that way, I could turn one side of the grill on to get hot while the other is not hot for that indirect cooking that we talked about with the charcoal grill. Right. When the ranks run the other way and they're side to side, it's a little harder because yeah, when you is. turn like it the is. two back ones on, you don't it have is. much room in the front. So it I is. like the side. I like the front to back ones. And let me tell you two other, um, de- well, I don't know what, attachments or features that you want to consider in a gas grill. And one I dismissed for years, and it turns out that Bruce uses it all the time. I will admit that Bruce grills way more more than I do, if you don't know. Bruce is the chef in our pair, and I'm the writer. But and uh, but he uses it way more often than I would ever imagine, and that is a side burner. Uh, there's actually a side burner on our gas grill. That it's just like a, a gas burner on a gas stove. Yeah, it's a kitchen burner, but it's outside. And why do I like that? Because even with a hood over my stove in our kitchen, there are sometimes I cook things that are so smoky that the hood can't handle it. But yeah. the side burner on the grill, like when I make foie gras, I could sear it in a super hot skillet. The smoke just goes <laughs> up and away, and it doesn't go in the kitchen. You have to you seared foie gras in 20 below in New England in the winter. <laughs> but it's also uh, the other thing that the side burner I think is great for is if you want to boil a pot of corn and it is 1,000 degrees mm. outside and you don't want all that steam in your house, you can go outside and turn that side burner on and bring a, a saucepan of water to a boil and put the corn in it. And it's really actually an excellent attachment to save 
on your air conditioning bills because you don't have to turn your your uh, stove on and and steam up your whole house. It's it's a brilliant thing. And the other thing that I, Bruce uses a lot and that I would have told you was uh, a maybe attachment, but he uses it a lot is the rotisserie. Oh function. my god, you can't not rotisserie a chicken or a turkey or a duck out on the grill it is an amazing thing the only thing is you're gonna have to run an extension cord somewhere from your house <laughs> to the motor for the rotisserie unless you're lucky enough to have a hardwired electric uh, unless outlet it's at your grill now we are lucky enough that i have a hardwired outlet on my deck you know with a weatherproof cover on it so i don't have to run it from inside right but, so but we used to do that stations they do have cooking stations well before we had that i used to run it through the window out of the, yes, the bathroom. And you did. It went out the window <laughs> of the bathroom and outside. But there's nothing better to me than a rotisserie yes, turkey do, out on the ground. We do live the Beverly Hillbillies life. And Bruce even loves the rotisserie in air fryers, but that's a whole other matter. Some modern nouveau air fryers now come with a rotisserie function, and he even loves the rotisserie function in air fryers. Hey, before we get to our second segment, let me remind you that it is a great idea to subscribe to this podcast and we would really appreciate a comment or rating it really helps us we're working hard here just little work maybe for us that would be terrific we would most appreciate it and up to segment two our one minute cooking tip what is it you should always keep a ball of butcher twine in your kitchen oh yeah it's made of 100 percent cotton you can use it to tie around a chicken to hold the legs together to yep. hold the wings against the side yep. you could take steaks like filet mignon and tie it around the middle you could make roast even so they cook evenly it stands up to the high heat of even of a broiler I couldn't live without kitchen twine. I've even used it to wrap packages when we're going to someone's house and I need something to wrap up and I don't have any ribbon. So there you go. Did you know Bruce and I have a new cookbook out this fall? It's the Instant Air Fryer Bible. It is a air fryer book specifically written for the air fryers that come from instant brands the same people who make the instant pot that is the vortex and the omni instant air fryers that's out this fall look for it already it's up wherever books are sold you can pre-order that would be fabulous so on up to segment three what is segment three well, segment three today is something new. Do you know as much as a chef? Or do you know more than a chef? Mark's going to ask me some questions that I don't know what they are, and we're going to see if I know the answers. And sure. We'll let's, see how it goes. Let's see how it goes. And you might know the answers to some of these, too. And maybe Bruce doesn't know the answers to some of these. So, one, Bruce, what's the most expensive coffee in the world? I think that's from Farewell Coffee in Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> Mark and I just spent a week in Asheville, and we were hiking the Blue Ridge Parkway and driving it. We were hiking. And we rented a loft in downtown Asheville. It was a really, really nice place. And they have a coffee shop downstairs, and they were charging $48 a pound for their coffee. So I think it's the coffee at Farewell Coffee. In Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> it's a super, super grimly hip coffee store. It's beautiful, actually. Am I right? Yeah, it's expensive, but of course you know that that's not right. It's the Kopi Lawak, right? What the hell is that? The Kopi Lawak is the, the coffee that is made out of partially digested coffee cherries 
that have been eaten and defecated out by the Asian palm civet. Oh, right. The civet poo coffee. Uh, yeah, the civet oh, poo yeah, the civet coffee. poo coffee. Supposedly, those cherry pits, the cherry bits are fermented as they pass through the civet's intestines. And after being defecated out with other fecal matter, they are collected. And I can guarantee you, I will never ever drink this coffee so my question is I, I if don't you care what happens to it if you don't point. have a civet can you do it yourself sure. is there a diy sure. of the poop coffee yeah, there must be a <laughs> diy maybe we give it our collies and see if we can't get collie coffee going and no i mean seriously diy no i know what you meant <laughs> i was suggesting coffees i'm never drinking this because i don't care what happens and i don't care how many foodies think it's great i'm just not doing it you can't make me ever drink this i'm sorry i'm just too old i don't have to do certain things anymore when i was when i was starting out in the food business and we were much younger i felt like i had to do everything and make it all right and you know if it was hip and and bleeding edge or new or whatever i had to mess with it and i just don't even i'm sorry i'm almost 62 and i don't care so i'm not drinking poop coffee there's just no way so my second question is i just love how outraged i am what what kind of cheese do you put on a reuben sandwich Oh, but there's only one kind, Swiss cheese. It's the only kind. Okay, you are wrong. Well, how am I wrong? You put you put Swiss cheese on a Reuben sandwich. Okay, this is a silly question. I grew up. It's really funny. I'm the Christian in the pair of. I still us. want to know why that's wrong. Well, because I'm the Christian in the pair of the Goyim in the pair of us, the Goy in the pair of us, and I grew up going to kosher delicatessens, and I didn't know Reuben's had cheese on them. I know this is crazy, but kosher delicatessens in Dallas, Texas, I didn't know that there were cheese on a Reuben until I moved to New York City. Because kosher delis in New York don't have Reubens because there's they cheese do, on them. They do so. They have Reubens. They have, they have corned beef sandwiches with sauerkraut. Well, that's not a Reuben. That's it's what a- we called a Reuben. <laughs> we called a Reuben that Russian dressing stuff and sauerkraut and corned beef on rye bread. I got my Reubens at the Charleston Gardens restaurant in B. Altman's on oh Madison Avenue God. at 34th Street and it was a whole thing. Well, let me tell you that the Goyim know about Rubens. The Swiss Goy- cheese. Swiss <laughs> the cheese. Goyim know that you can't put cheese on a Ruben. No, I'm right. It's Swiss cheese. No, you're mixing meat and dairy. It's wrong. <laughs> I didn't even know it was a... I swear to God, I did not know that was a thing until I moved to New York City. And I was like, cheese on a Reuben? This like violates all kashrut. And this is the Christian talking. So there you go. Okay. What was the original use for ketchup? Oh. Um, hmm. Oh, come on, you know this. I know you know this because it's your favorite topic. Oh, was it an enema? Did they use it for enemas like the Kellogg brothers did with yogurt and cereal and coffee and all that stuff? I guess close. It was actually originally sold as a diarrhea medicine. Oh, to stop diarrhea. Mm, Allegedly. It was to cure ailments like diarrhea, indigestion, and even jaundice. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, I uh, in my other life besides cooking, I actually teach and lead book groups. And I am currently teaching an eight-week class on Edith Wharton to like 200 people via Zoom. And I have to tell you that given that I've read a ton of Wharton short stories and novels in the last six months to get ready for this, dyspepsia was a big thing. <laughs> Let me tell you that all the men have dyspepsia uh, in the ni- 1905, 1915. Dyspepsia was a thing. And even back in the 1830s, 
tomato ketchup was being sold actually as a cure. Oh, it was the emodium of its day. It's tomato al- flavored emodium. It's allegedly so. Uh, the idea was proposed by Dr. John Cook Bennett, who later sold the recipe in the form of tomato pills that you could swallow. I guess they were in <laughs> capsules. Wow. Some way. Cool. That's really, really gross. Okay, now I know you know the answer to the last one. Okay. Please. Where Let's was see. the popular curry chicken tikka masala invented? Mother Joffrey's Kitchen. No, come on, you do know this. Come oh on. yeah, that's a British thing, isn't it? It's no. it's it's like an Indian dish, no. but wasn't it? You isn't it British? Scotland British. That's them's fighting <laughs> words in a lot of part of the world. But go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. right. It was in Scotland. Mm-hmm. I did, I don't remember what restaurant it was, but I do know that it's grilled chicken breast, it all coated and stuff, but. You know those Brits, they like sauces on everything. So they figured out a way to You're take... still calling the Scots Brits, but go on. Well, please carry on with your And so bad they would self. take this chicken out of the tandoori oven and then drown it in some kind of sauce. Yes. Uh, some observers have called chicken tikka masala the first widely accepted example of actually fusion cuisine. Um, it is widely considered the country's, that is Scotland's, national dish, in fact. But in 2001, the British Foreign Secretary, Robin Cook, gave a speech in which he hailed chicken tikka masala as a symbol of modern multicultural Britain. That seems to me wrong on so many levels. Sorry if you're Scots again. Sorry that that happened, but there you go. I guess I stand for Scottish independence. I'm sorry that I called you that. Since it has absolutely nothing to do with me, I guess I stand for it. Um, <laughs> for his simplified explanation of how the entree evolved, chicken tikka is an Indian dish. The masala sauce was added to satisfy the desire of British people to have their meat served in gravy. Oh, they love sauces. What is with the Brits and their gravy? I don't Everything know. Everything is sauced. I don't, you know, it, uh, it's just to go off on a complete riff on this. Uh, we were, as Bruce told you, we were down in Asheville recently, and we want to do a podcast about some of the food finds we found in Asheville in case you you want to go to Asheville because Asheville is a really great food city in so many ways. And we want to talk about what that all means and what the kids are into, what the kids are doing in Asheville and all that kind of stuff. But here's my thing. And we had a lot of good barbecue, you know, I mean, it's Asheville. And so we had a lot of good barbecue, but here's my thing. I, oh my God, I am a Texas boy and I don't eat barbecue sauce. I don't like it. I don't like anything about it. I think if you did the barbecue right, if you smoked the brisket properly, if you did the ribs properly so they're not desiccated pieces of shard meat on bone, I don't need sauce and I should not need sauce of any sort unless... Maybe it's vinegar, but that's a whole different matter. That's because I just happen to like vinegar. Well, I agree with you. And we did find an amazing rib place, 12 Bones. Mm. And supposedly the claim to fame was that Obama liked them, but Obama liked them with the blueberry chipotle sauce. No, Obama's wrong. No, we had them nude, no, naked. They had the naked ribs with nothing but salt and pepper and smoked. N-E-K-K-I-D. Oh. God, that's a good reason. You know the difference in the South between being nude and naked, don't you? Well, when, in your, when you're nude, you don't have your clothes on. And when you're naked, you don't have them on, but you're supposed to have them on. You're doing something that involves being without clothes <laughs> that you shouldn't for, be doing. Off for a reason. Right. And that's it's right. not sleeping. That's the difference between being nude and being naked, as we say in the South. And naked is you should have your clothes on. You got caught with them off. So <laughs> there you go. Okay. So on to segment for our traditional fourth segment, which is what's making us happy in food this week. 
This week, what is making me happy are pecan roasts. Oh, it's the same for me. Okay, well, great. We we picked the same thing. Then this has to be one of the first times we've ever done that. Okay. Um, oh, you explain what it is. We had them for dinner you last night. You explain what they are, and then okay. I'm going to talk about it. So it's a cut of meat that's near the sirloin. It's got a it's a lean piece, but it's very tender, very and lean. it's got a big fat cap on the top, which bastes the meat as you mm-hmm. roast it. It's a South American cut. It's often in Argentina, the kind of cuts that, that go think, think on. Think of like pecan with an A, pecan. Except it's not quite spelled that way, but still think about it that way. They cut them into steaks in, in South America, and they put them on spits, and they grill them that way. I just grilled the whole big chunk mm, of meat without mm, cutting it last mm, night mm, mm, and mm. we ate it so rare it was blue it was just barely well, warm in the middle and uh, charred on the outside i'm gonna say and, I'm, gonna, oh. I'm gonna own up because that's how i like my i like steak so a good vet could save the cow so uh it was very rare <laughs> in the middle very rare in the middle and uh, that's how i like it and it was so tasty um we get our pecan roast from howling flats farm which is a local farm in northwestern connecticut shout out to kelly check them out on facebook Howling yep. Flats Farm. You can buy meat from Kelly. She's great. It's, it's fabulous. Uh, we love the meat from Howling Flats Farm, and we buy her pecan roast because she has them, and very few people have them, and she saves the hangers and the pecanas and all those things and the flat irons and all that for us and the, the steaks that I like, essentially. So we, I, we, Bruce made a pecan roast, as he says, last night on the grill, and it was, I wanted, I, he asked me what I wanted for dinner. Aren't I lucky? I got asked what I wanted for dinner, and I I wanted steak and mashed potatoes, and that's and you what got I steak got. and mashed potatoes. I know. I, did, I just <laughs> it was like I need steak and mashed potatoes. Please don't ask me why I needed steak and mashed potatoes, but that's what I wanted. Well, tonight so. he's getting hot dogs and onion rings. Oh, but God. no buns, so I could justify the onion rings. Oh, fun! <laughs> this this is also being sixty-two. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. We hope you will subscribe, like it, and we hope you will come back. And please go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, and join the group and join the conversation. And please, as Mark said, subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And we'll see you next time on Cooking with Bruce and Mark.